Welcome back to Do We Like Movies. I'm your host, Angel. And I'm your stunt man that carries Angel's load host. What? Javier Lopez. <laughs> that came off way more disgusting than you probably intended. Well, it was a line from the movie. You know what? No, just keep going. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, I, I'm the disgusting one of the group anyway. Uh, and this week we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Fuck yeah. I'm uh, this so is excited. This is our first time ever doing a Quentin Tarantino movie. Which is really weird that it's this one. Have we set a president and now we gotta go in reverse order? <laughs> Fuck yeah. What's next? Django? <laughs> oh no, Hateful Eight would be next. Um, what's your... I guess, maybe because it's our first time dealing with Quentin Tarantino, I think it would be good for both of us to kind of give our thoughts on... What our favorite Tarantino movie is, uh, and how we kind of got introduced to this film. Hmm, my favorite Quentin Tarantino, my favorite Directino movie. (laughs) Ah, man, that one's hard. Like, for the longest time, I would say Pulp Fiction, because that's everyone's favorite. But honestly, Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs was my first, I think, foray into Quentin Tarantino. And it was just such an amazing, uh, well, it was such an amazingly scripted film that I was like, holy shit, I'm like, people can write dialogue like this, like, legitimately, and turn it into a movie? And people are okay with that? (laughs) So that was definitely one, for my longest time, for the longest time, it was one of my favorite movies. Like, to this day, I'm pretty sure I have a, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have a, uh, 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 Yahoo Mail account that's Mr. White something something or some other so, and you know somewhere you know when I was going through my cringy phase um, but honestly like I've always been a, a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino which is kind of hard sometimes he makes it a little bit hard to be a fan of his like you know once you take him out of just talking about his films right yes um, it's kind of like not obviously not as bad but like the Todd Phillips conversation where we talk about like sometimes when he talks you almost like some of his stuff less based on the opinions he has but that's the thing like Tarantino doesn't have like well Tarantino's he's a much let's say higher class of filmmaker I'm not gonna really I mean he's like this what's it called like this avant-garde artist or some shit I don't know I might have just made up a word I I think I think you mean auteur what uh, same shit I talk about movies not words okay (laughs) but he's this auteur fucking director right and he's just like he gets really into his craft and really gets into his stories um, and yeah, he's just one of those controversial ass dudes who m- makes amazing stories, but also at the expense of, I don't know, kind of like not really taking responsibility for his work as a, uh, I don't know, as a, as a content creator. Um, he's definitely, he's definitely a guy that like just generates some sort of response from people. Uh, that being said, though, like, I try to, I try to take him as a person with a grain of salt, especially when talking about his works. Um, but yeah, like, I think, I think the first movie that really got me into Quentin Tarantino, uh, was Reservoir Dogs. And even that, I had to go looking for it because Kill Bill was so damn big when I was, like, in high school. And I think that's the other thing. Kill Bill kind of brought this resurgence where a uh, you know edgy young Javier could be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be one of these film douches, and then 
I, you know, now I'm making a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, my experience with Quentin Tarantino stuff is the first time I had really even heard of Pulp Fiction was actually was actually a Simpsons uh, the Simpsons parody episode where they wait, did wait, wait, the wait, 22 don't... short stories in Springfield that one yeah 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 um, I thought you meant the one where he guest stars on Itchy and Scratchy <laughs> yeah but um, no I definitely you know kind of discovered who he was based off of that but uh, more than anything uh, just being around the 90s right like he really exploded on the scene in the 90s uh, the first film of his that I saw was also actually Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched it. <laughs> my parents used to have on demand on their oh own cable. So one awesome. of the movies that was playing free on demand was actually Reservoir Dogs. And I had to watch it a couple times and I, I had a hard time really getting into it that much. Um, that said, I think it's good. Uh, but I did go back and watch Pulp Fiction. I thought Pulp Fiction was pretty good. I feel like it's on TV every once in a while now, all the time. It is, yeah. Or I mean, if like you got a, every single streaming service. If you got a spare three hours to kill, go ahead, go for it. But uh, more as an adult, I actually discovered the one Quentin Tarantino movie that I would categorize as not just my favorite movie of his, but maybe one of my favorite movies of all time, and that's Jackie Brown with Pam Greer. I want to take a list of all the movies on this show that you've gone back and said favorite movie of all time and actually compile that list. Uh, One of my favorites of all time, and I probably (laughs) could compile a list for you, to be honest. But yeah, I mean, Jackie Brown was fucking great, and it was like, it was on the tail end of those heist movies where, and that's what's really interesting when we're talking about Reservoir Dogs, uh, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. It's these movies that are grounded in realism, they're gritty, they're they're very much kind of like neo-noir, right? I think it's also because we're talking, this week we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is Tarantino's great return to shooting movies in, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and That's those first, right. Those first yeah. three movies all took, obviously it doesn't have the same feel. Those first three movies who that took place in LA feel very LA, 90s, but also have somewhat of a 70s aesthetic. I always kind of pictured early Tarantino and maybe part of this film as like, he's always a guy who's kind of created his version of L.A. And his version of L.A. from his movies is a place where you'd like to hang out in. Oh, totally. His version of L.A. is very, it's very eccentric and it feels like not, I mean, it's, it's, it's an, it's the right juxtaposition of colorful and gritty, right? Yeah, like I don't doubt that there's parts of L.A. that are like this, again, I'm not from L.A., I've been there enough times, and I think most people who are from Northern California don't don't desire to be from Southern California. Boo! <laughs> no, just kidding, L.A. <laughs> listeners, thanks for supporting. <laughs> but Quentin Tarantino's work definitely makes you appreciate, you know, uh, more of L.A., and it really is, when you think about it, it is kind of a, it is very much a unique city, because it's so, like, massive and sprawling, you know, with all these like millions of little cities that are there, that you know, it, it's it's it feels like you can be in twenty different genres of film just shooting in that one town. It's a concrete jungle made of a bunch of mini jungles, all in the middle of the desert. <laughs> it's such a weird and cool town, and I think uh, no one is able to kind of capture a, mis- a certain mystique to it um, quite like Tarantino does. 
And Quentin Tarantino, like, this movie, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, not only, like, a lot of people talk about how it's his love letter, um, it's a love letter to, like, old Hollywood, right? But it, I think, I, I don't know, it feels like it's a love letter to the city itself. Well, it's also, I'll put it to you this way, this movie also captures a transition that takes place. The, the beginning of it, where you're introduced to the character of Rick Dalton. Rick Dalton. Uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. In the beginning, he seems like a guy who, when he his TV show was on the air, he was someone who was very old Hollywood. And a lot of the characters in this film are very much against the counterculture that is rising. Uh, in, in With the, how many times everyone says the words fucking hippies. <laughs> yeah. In in the city, and I think one of the things, I don't know what he's intending on trying to say about it, or if he's saying anything about it, but I think one of the things that, um, where how it resonates to today, is I do think in the last decade, uh, specifically the 2000s, right, like I think there was a, um, I'm not going to say it was an optimistic time, it was definitely grim because of all the wars in the Middle East and 9-11 and all that kind of stuff, but I think... I think right now we are transitioning into a time that is much more reflective of the Nixon years in you know in in the U.S. where we are now having the rise of more counterculture, and it really does feel like things are kind of going in a circle a little bit. And one of the things that's interesting is that the main character of this film is someone who's experiencing that transition, and they're and they're like, and they're not ready to cope with it. And there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of, like, fear of the unknown, and the fear of not making it past the transition, and that's a theme that comes up a lot, that I'm gonna definitely fall back on when we get to certain scenes in the film. Um, do you just wanna fucking jump in? You ready for this shit? Sure. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm so happy right now, I'm excited. <laughs> so the movie starts with a logo for Columbia Pictures, and uh, I think we should also mention that this is the first time ever that Quentin Tarantino's done a movie for not Miramax Pictures. Mm-hmm. And, I wonder why. And mainly because, you know, the Weinsteins are the guys who distributed and produced every single one of his films uh, heading all the way back to Reservoir Dogs. Now, from what I hear from my woke folks, he did stand up to Harvey Weinstein, quote-unquote. Okay. <laughs> but I think it was one of those, hey, man, this is weird now that you're Steven on my wife. When I think he was married to Mira Sorvino or something like that. Again, don't want to talk about how, you know, fucking great of a person he is. You know, again, take everything Quentin Tarantino does with a grain of salt. (laughs) But this film introduces us to 19... Oh, no, wait, it's it's the interview, right? It introduces us through via an interview of the 19... Or... 1969 television star Rick Dalton and yes. his trusty stuntman sidekick Cliff Booth. So Rick Dalton is a actor that is pretty much typecasted in all these. Uh, I think it was NBC, right? Mm-hmm. An NBC television show called uh, Bounty Law, where he plays the the hero Jake Cahill. So imagine Bonanza or Wild Wild West or any of those like campy cowboy shows? You want to hear back something funny? What uh, the television series Bonanza 
actually partially filmed uh, at the Spawn Ranch. Which we will talk about. Yeah. Oh, I can't fucking wait, bro. Um, I think the importance of the year 1969 is also good to note as well, because <laughs> I didn't realize a ton of this until, <clears throat> until I kind of started to do a little bit of the background on the events that this film covers. But the, let's put it out there now, the murder of Sharon Tate is considered, um, is considered kind of like the end of old Hollywood. And also the end of the hippie movement. So it's like two different things died with the death of Sharon Tate. And for those that don't know, that's what this film revolves around. It revolves around the lead up uh, to what happened on that fateful night, you know? And, and the other thing, too, is that this was the beginning of the Nixon administration. And we always, you know, we've had lots of several conversations at this point about the 1970s. And just film in the 1970s is going to take such a drastic, sharp, dark, and nihilistic turn uh, that, you know, it really is it really is the end of an era <clears throat> that they are covering here. So around this time, we find out that uh, Rick Dalton actually quit Bounty Law because he wanted to make a film career for himself, which didn't really go as planned. So as a result, Bonanza, I mean not Bonanza, sorry, Bounty Law was was shit canned, everyone lost their jobs, and then um, Cliff kind of followed him around and, you know, from project to project, and essentially kept getting typecasted as the cowboy. And... At this point, he's feeling anxiety and fear that his his best years are behind him and that his career is slowly coming to an end. Yes. He has kind of a mini breakdown after he meets with... Uh, Marvin Schwartz. Marvin Schwartz, who is played, played. by Al Pacino. Al Directino. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a pretty you know interesting scene that they have where, I guess, Al Pacino's actually trying to convince him to start going to do spaghetti westerns. <laughs> to which fucking Rick reacts like it's the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, I think this was a period of spaghetti westerns where people weren't really that, you know. Well, I guess, not, I forgot what year... American actors can have thought that it was a good move for their career. Well, I forgot what year it was that, um, that, uh, that, what's it called, um, Clint Eastwood and the Man With No Name trilogy came out. But, I mean, that, I'm assuming 1969, it was probably a movie that came out in the 70s or so. So it was probably before that. People probably had no idea how profitable those spaghetti westerns were. A Google search immediately proves Javi is wrong, so I'm sorry, y'all. But apparently the Man With No Name trilogy all was spawned between the years of 1964 and 1967. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, maybe it was a time where people just didn't want to go to Italy. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, this is where we're introduced to the character of Rick Dalton, played by DiCaprio, and his stuntman, Cliff, who is played by Brad Pitt. And I think this is the first time that both of these actors have acted in a film together. Yeah, um, I can't really think of any other project they could have been on. This is DiCaprio's second time doing a movie with Quentin Tarantino, and this is Brad Pitt's first. Second. And, <clears throat> is it his second? Yeah, remember in Glorious Bastards. Oh my god, how did I forget that? Yeah, especially how great that How did I forget was. that? Remember Lieutenant <laughs> Aldo Ray? <laughs> oh my god. I started yeah. watching being another one that we just don't remember. <laughs> Wait, now I gotta think, was he in Hateful Eight or Jingle? <laughs> No, it's uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. It, it's it's interesting to see both of these actors in together, and there's a good chunk of this movie that's really just about their friendship. I know, I love it. Um, <laughs> it's such a bromance. I, what's funny is that while I was watching this movie two nights ago, 
I remember thinking to myself over and over and over again, this doesn't feel like a Tarantino movie. Mm -hmm. And it really took me some time sleeping on it because obviously I watched this movie in two in two sections on two different. Oh, nights. this is a long fucking movie, y'all. We're talking about almost like twenty minutes shy of three hours. Yeah. Like you're talking on Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> yep, you're not lying. <laughs> Which, interestingly enough, you know, is also a, is also a '60s movie that's kind of at the tail end of the you know of the hippie '60s and moving into the darker '70s. All these fucking hippies. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's it, it's it's. It, I like that there's a good chunk of this movie that's just dedicated to them. I also thought that, you know, uh, giving it, like, a night to think about it and, you know, watching it to the next day. I think this is, there is a lot of Pulp Fiction in this in that it's a ensemble piece in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, and you're spending different sections of the movie with different characters. It revolves essentially around three different main storylines, right? Mm -hmm. It revolves around the fall of Rick Dalton, if you want to call it that. It revolves around the rise of Sharon Tate. And kind of the last main story arc is where kind of both of those meet, you know? Uh, and interestingly enough, I mean, uh, doing the research that I did on Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was somebody who was more famous for the guest uh, appearances that she did on television shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the earlier ones, or one of the more popular ones, was when she was on Beverly Hillbillies. Mm -hmm. um, she had movies that she worked on. One with her husband, Roman Polanski, um, which was a movie that was never really meant to be released after a while, and that Roman really fought to get released until uh, until her movie that they're watching in this film came the out. The Wrecking Crew? The Wrecking... No, no, not The Wrecking Crew. No, well, that's the movie she's in. Yeah, that's movie. the one she's watching. But there was another one that she was doing around this time. And that Rosemary's was... Baby. Nah, I'm just throwing this. No, no, no. That's a Polanski movie. Oh, my bad. <laughs> she was not in it. I'm just throwing movies out there. <laughs> but uh... I was like, blonde white woman. That's good enough. <laughs> but yeah, it, she was someone who was considered like a star on the rise. I guess like much like Margot Robbie when she did her last film with Leo, right? Ooh. When they did Wolf of Wall Street. Freaky. But, um... It, it, her career never really just it just never really took off uh, mm -hmm. mostly because unfortunately she met an untimely death at a young young age dude spoilers <laughs> um, but oh can we take a moment to talk about Margot Robbie and how she is just such a versatile actress and she comes from that part of Australia where I'm sure there's they're genetically engineering the most attractive people in the world. <laughs> Um, I'll say this. I thought she was okay when I watched her in Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I thought she'd be interesting as Harley Quinn. I had not watched Birds of Prey yet, which, who? Who? which premieres who? What this weekend. What are you, weekend. a fucking owl? Yeah. <laughs> what am I, a, a clown to you? Oh, no, wait, that was <laughs> Pesci. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, the stuff that I've seen her in, obviously, at this point, I, I everyone, you know, knows she's a brilliant actress, and... She's capable of giving fantastic performances. I really do appreciate the performance that she's giving here as well. And I don't think it's just a... Um, I really don't think that it's just Tarantino ogling Margot Robbie. Why she seems like such an interesting character to be around. Mm -hmm. She doesn't seem too dis... Well, it, it is different because the context of the films are different. But in some ways her character reminds me <clears throat> of Jackie Brown... In that it's a it's yeah in that it's a character who 
the movie kind of has built itself as this is going to be a movie about this character, but it's equal parts around the about oh, the people gotcha, around gotcha, her. Gotcha. But she's interesting, and she's enough of a she's got enough depth to her. That she captures your attention whenever she's on screen. She's got personality, and, and she's just not there to look hot. And Pam Greer does the exact same thing. And I think the reason why it's so impressive with Jackie Brown is because Pam Greer was considered, you know, quote-unquote, older, you know, someone who was past the greatest years of her career. And, you know, she really burst back onto the, to the, uh, to the spotlight because of the way that Tarantino kind of, like, kind of shot her in the film right mm-hmm. so it, it, i do i do think that what i'm saying is i think this movie has pieces of other tarantino's movies in it and tarantino it, has this thing where he treats certain actors with so much respect on screen because he loves them but not in like in his creepy foot fetish weirdo way he because can do that. he because the thing is, like, I remember... Well, well yeah, he does. Like, Uma Thurman's Mar- feet, he probably... Margot Robbie's feet were on top of the seats in the movie. Those theater. weren't even the most disgusting feet in this movie, by the way. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that, like, when he when he respects somebody, he has, like, this weird admiration for him. Like, I remember hearing this story about how he accidentally left up a bunch of, like... Pam Greer posters. Pam Greer posters, and she auditioned for the role that he wrote with her in mind. Yeah. And then she was like, do you do this to impress me? He goes, no, I forgot to take him down, and actually I'm kind of embarrassed now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's funny because he's such a fanboy, you know? Yeah. So, and, I, and, I, and, and my understanding is that Sharon Tate's sister um, was kind of a consultant on this film. And uh, Sharon Tate's sister appreciated the way that that, uh, Margot Robbie and Tarantino have kind of brought Sharon Tate to life in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, I I, I go by it based on that, right? Like, I mean, I know the movies that she was in. I've seen a couple episodes of Beverly Hillbillies. But by and large, like, this era of Hollywood... This is lost to us. Yeah. Like this isn't something that you know your run of the mill casual fan is going to really know about. Even though there are, there is a lot of sections of this uh, movie where people are listening to the radio or listening to television, mm-hmm. and I don't remember exactly where in it. But there's a Batman reference in here. Yep, there there's is. an Adam West Batman. Oh reference. no, um, it was uh, Marvin Schwartz. Yeah, <laughs> make, because the thing is, after um, so I guess kind of getting us back on track. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. Back so, to Batman. Ba- oh my fucking god! Who <laughs> all just realized that? <laughs> but yeah, so pretty much, um, you know, uh, Rick Dalton has resigned himself to just playing these bad guys that every, you know, on, on these pilots and all these episodes on these shows like FBI and I think what's the what's the other one he's working on? Um, I forgot, there, there's another movie, or another show he's working on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, in Marvin Schwartz, is like, you can either keep playing the heavy, and these new leads kick the shit out of you every week, and he goes, who's it gonna be next week? Is it gonna be Batman? Yeah. <laughs> and then he has the Bam Pow reference. No, it's awesome, too, because let's, like, one of the things I do know, the, the reason why I do know a lot of the actors of the 60s, the decade itself, mm-hmm. is because all the biggest actors of that decade... Had bits on Batman. Yep. Like, it was... It, it From what my understanding is, that show was a party. Like, everyone wanted to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they, like... Yeah, especially freaking Burt Ward and his giant penis. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that was him! He said that. <laughs> I like how I kill your vibes. <laughs> so anyway, um, 
and coupled with this essential breakdown of Rick Dalton. Oh yeah, Rick Dalton gets driven around by Cliff Booth because apparently he has one too many DUIs. Yes. <laughs> so Cliff Booth is basically his gopher, right? On he's top a, of being yeah. a stuntman, he is his best friend and manservant. He's the Cato to his Green Hornet. <laughs> <laughs> You'll see why that comes up later. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what I really like is while they're coupling this and they're able to transition very seamlessly, right? Where we see the day in the life of Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. Um, and as they pull into their apartment or in the, into, into uh, Rick's house... Who do we see next door but Roman Polanski and uh, Sharon Tate oh. actually coming home. And then we find out they're neighbors, yeah. you know? You know what? I think it's good to also mention that this film is going to deal with... There's a tell early on in this movie that's going to tell you this is another Quentin Tarantino alternate reality film. And that's the and that's the scene where you see Leo DiCaprio's character like taking a flamethrower to the Nazis. Yeah, which is apparently a reference to the fact that in this universe, Hitler was murdered <gasps> to end World War Two. So Inglorious, so Inglorious in Bastards was real in with Glorious, the Tarantino. Yeah, Inglorious in Bastards is in universe here. That's crazy because and there's always been that fan theory where there's certain movies that take place that are movies in the Tarantino verse. Like Kill Bill and I think Django. But um, that's actually kind of cool. I had no idea that that's how World War II ended. <laughs> yeah, so it immediately. <laughs> In real life. It will immediately tell you, you know, to expect something different at the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. That said, I had this. I, for some reason, thought I was watching a very straightforward adaptation. And I thought that we were going to see all the Tarantino. We were going to watch Quentin Tarantino's version of the Sharon Tate murder. Nah, shut up, stupid. <laughs> you know nothing. <laughs> so, meanwhile, you know, going back to back to Sharon and uh, Roman Polanski, they meet up and we get to meet... Uh, and they actually go to one of the fucking crazy-ass 60s Playboy mansion parties, mm-hmm. right? Where Which we get to meet... like, dancing with, like, the mamas and the papas. Yeah! <laughs> it's such a fucking crazy name drop and a mishmash of different people where fucking yeah. Steve McQueen Steve is McQueen there. Steve McQueen is there. Yeah. Fucking mamas and the papas. Fucking... I forgot what the... What, what that, uh... Oh, my God. There's just so many characters in there. Like, so many famous people that I'm, I'm like, forgetting who else. Yeah. And, of course, they're at the Playboy Mansion, which is, you know, where a lot of these 1960s Hollywood parties were. And then, of course, we meet Jay Sabring. Sebring? Jay Sebring? Sebring. Who mm-hmm. is uh, Sharon Tate's ex-boyfriend and, in real life, unfortunately, one of the victims from the Sharon Tate murders. Yes. But, um, interestingly enough, they do kind of tell the story a little bit of... Uh, Steve of- McQueen's super angry that he had no shot, so he's just, like, bitterly being like, she was with him. Yeah, they kind of play him like a cuckold in this, but <laughs> my understanding is that uh, is the real-life J.C. Ring is more of, like, a very smooth... He basically started off as a hairdresser for the stars. Yeah. Um, did, like, you know, obviously, like, I guess a lot of the, the idea of, like, you know, actors getting... Hair pieces, you know, getting uh, styled and all that kind of stuff for film. Mm-hmm. Like, that was something that he was kind of a pioneer of. Yeah. And he had a very good working relationship with people like, I think it was, I think it was Warren Beatty. Um, yeah, I, I think it's Warren Beatty. Um, but it, it, there, there's a, he had a lot of, like, prominent friends in the industry. Oh, yeah. Like, he, was, he knew a bunch of people because he'd worked on so many different projects. Yeah. 
so he was introduced to uh, Sharon Tate, and he and Sharon ended up, you know, uh, getting, well, having a very long relationship, and it's eventually getting engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Which she ends up breaking off when she meets good old Roman Polanski. She goes and works with him. Who, you know, she had a very miserable existence with him as well, but, you know. I mean, I'm not going to get into it's that. It's Roman Polanski. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not here to judge the man. Plenty of greater people than us can do that. We're just here to talk about movies. Yeah. So we get to see Rick Dalton's creative process where he goes and gets shit-faced drunk while reciting lines to himself. And we also get to meet my favorite character in the movie, Cliff Booth's faithful dog, Brandy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Brandy's such an adorable-looking pit bull, dude. Yes. But we also get to see that, I mean, Rick Dalton... I mean, uh, you know, well, Rick Dalton lives in this huge, opulent house in the in the Los Angeles hills... Um, freaking Cliff Booth lives in a rink-a-dink trailer out in the middle of the desert. Yeah, where he just, like, eats mac and cheese out of a saucepan. That made me want mac and cheese so fucking bad. I wanted mac and cheese less. Oh, (laughs) what do you mean? Fucking hunky-ass Brad Pitt (laughs) eating mac and cheese. I'll say this, though. I mean... Yes, it's a very small place that he lives in, but I think it's because it's styled, it's such a period-styled, like, uh, trailer. Yeah. You know, it, God, would it, it, it looks rad. Nice. It <laughs> looks so, it looked like the ultimate bachelor pad. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, you know, it's the, it's the place for him and his dog, he's got the weights out front, he's a man's man. And he lives, like, you know, behind a drive-in. He's so cool! <laughs> this is the guy that would go pick up 18-year-old high school girls. <laughs> yikes. I know, big yikes. But it's the 60s, man! <laughs> so, the next day, uh, you know, Cliff ends up taking Rick to the set of... What's the show that he's working on? Lancer! The show is called Lancer, you idiot. Alright. Wait, you said it was a real show? Yeah, it was an actual television show. I thought show. it was a fake show. <laughs> no, no, no. It was an actual television show, and the character that Timothy Oliphant is playing is, an, is a real person. I fucking love Timothy Oliphant. Yeah. This movie has so many fucking great actors. Well, funny enough, he's in this film. I, I think the reason why they casted him is because of the work that he did on Deadwood. Oh, which yeah. I've seen episodes of that on HBO. I never got as into it as I wanted to, but definitely for a Western, I, I thought it was really interesting. Everyone just says cunt and fuck all the time in the West, dude. <laughs> Nobody does period pieces like HBO. Yeah. There's Justified. He was also essentially a modern cowboy in that. Um, this, from here we get the, we actually get this, we, is this the one where we get the scene of, uh, of Clip Booth with uh, Bruce Lee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I fucking love this part, dude. So he takes, uh, he takes... Uh, Rick over to the to the studio, and he keeps running into this like hippie girl. First, he sees her carrying pickles, and think that was the day before. And now he just sees her like she's he, she's hitchhiking, uh, when, which was very common in the oh, yeah. pre love sixties. Right? Don't do that now, guys. Please do not hitchhike now. Like <laughs> yeah. it's it's bad. Treated <laughs> to a lot of bad stuff then. Yeah. So. And then so when he goes and he drops off uh, Rick to at at, at the at the set for Lancer, Rick tells him to go back to his house and if he can fix his television antenna. So which he goes and he does because he, you know, fucking Cliff is just the coolest bro ever. Well, the other thing 
is that he's kind of he's been low key blackballed from Hollywood because mm-hmm. there is a. I don't, I don't think it's low key. They very very yeah, they blackballed him from Hollywood because he's uh, kind of being partially blamed for the death of his wife. It's in not so many words, and then we get that we get that flashback of uh, I think it's. Uh, What's her name? Something Gayheart? Rebecca Gayheart, I think, plays his wife. And she's just nagging him while he's playing with the spear gun. So essentially the movie implies that she died on on that boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of people that believe it was Cliff Booth that did it. Um, so while he goes and works, you know, he tries to get as much work as he can as a stuntman. But now nobody likes him. Nobody trusts him after that. And we get this scene where we find out... Rick Dalton was actually on an episode of Green Hornet. Mm-hmm. And in that, <laughs> while playing Rick's stunt double, he gets to meet the legendary Bruce Lee. And the way Bruce... A lot of people had problems with the way Bruce Lee w- w- was portrayed in this film. His own daughter had problems yes. with the way he was portrayed in this film. Uh, like I said, a lot of people. And when you watch it... You're like, yeah, I can see that. I can see why people had a problem with him because he's very play- he's played up as crass and arrogant and kind of a dick, mm-hmm. you know. And I remember I actually did talk to a coworker of mine who's a huge Bruce Lee fan, and he told me that because he he hadn't watched the movie yet, he wanted to, but he told me that because I I told him I'm like, hey, I know you're a huge Bruce Lee fan. You might not be a huge fan of how how he's portrayed. And I told him that a, a little bit about it, and he's like, "Well, you know, Bruce Lee was he had a, he had a chip on his shoulder. That's just kind of the guy he was. Little man syndrome, a little bit. I mean, because <laughs> that's what it sounds like here. Except that he's a little man that can literally kick the shit out of anybody he wants. Yeah, it is a less than flattering portrayal in this film, though. So but I have somewhat of a problem. Again, I don't want to defend Quentin Tarantino. Again, taking everything with a grain of salt. But what I really like is, I guess, as far as the theme of the movie, a theme of the story going on, right? It does kind of make sense because you got you got three characters. I'm going to talk about Bruce Lee, Cliff, and uh, Rick. You got three dudes that are very apprehensive about their future. They don't know what's going on. He is also very much connected to Sharon Tate in that he helped. Sh- he, yeah, he did uh, fight choreography for yeah. her. But, I mean, also what I'm referring to is that, like, by this time in the 69, Green Hornet was on kind of on its way out. And it's like, people didn't know if they were going to have jobs. You know, this is the, this is Bruce Lee before Bruce Lee became a household name. So I guess I kind of see, like, you know, like, if you're trying to play that he's anxious about his future and shit. But at the same time, I'm also not going to lie. I'm going to say this is also a very less than flattering portrayal of what the guy is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, like, the theme of the movie of being worried about this transition, it totally fits, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so, while Cliff Booth is working on... <laughs> you just say Cliff. You <laughs> say Cliff Booth. I call him fucking dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> while Cliff is working on the antenna on Rick's uh, house, that's where he sees, I think it's a Twinkie truck. And uh, the Twinkie truck is driving up on... I guess to the gate of Roman and uh, Sharon Tate's truck. It's a weird truck. Yeah, which you know that is the one and only appearance by our Charles Manson in this film. And it's I forgot who the guy's name that plays him, 
literally not enough time to even be able to be like, wow, he's a great actor. <laughs> yeah. No. He just shows up asking for a music producer that used to live there to Jay. Oh, Terry, right? Terry yeah. Melcher. And then Jay's just like, no, he doesn't live here anymore, buddy. And he goes, okay, bye. Yeah. And it, I guess if you know, right? The thing is, if you follow, if you know what this movie's about, and you know, you're supposed to feel a little eeriness, right? Yes, which, you know, that's the thing. This movie very much plays on the fact that you know what happened with Sharon yeah. Tate. Because a lot of these characters are not going to be mentioned by name. They're going to be kind of pointed out to you in the background. But for the most part, you really have to have a base understanding of who these people are. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jay is the one who meets him at the door. And I guess so does Sharon. And they you know, both kind of shoo him away. Get out of here, you fucking hippie! <laughs> yeah, which, you know, I, I I do appreciate that this movie does have, like, a, a sense of looming danger Yeah, uh, everywhere they go. Especially every single time that we see uh, either the hitchhikers or, you know, or Manton himself or anyone who's part of Manton's family. Mm-hmm. Um, Before we move on, I do want, we, I didn't actually get to talk about the fight itself between Cliff and, uh, and, and Bruce Lee, but this movie deposits that Bruce Lee got the shit kicked out of <laughs> Which actually isn't too far from the truth, because I guess Gene LaBelle was actually doing stunt work back a while ago. Oh, okay. And there's a story that Gene LaBelle actually uh, was sparring with Bruce Lee, and he got kicked and got super mad, so he put him in a fucking like, chokehold. <laughs> Bruce Lee was like, what the fuck was that? He goes, I need to learn how to do submissions. So he, they, he started working with Gene to learn how to, how to choke people out. Um, but yeah, that, I just wanted to bring that up. But yeah, it's a, it's a funny fight because, you know, <laughs> fucking Bruce Lee just jump kicks Cliff right in the chest. <laughs> and all I can think about was Chappelle show. Um, oh, yeah, because he went flying. Dude. Yeah. yeah. Um. We cut back to Sherry, uh, Sharon Tate. I was about to say Sherry Tate. Sherry? Scary Sherry. <laughs> like I know her. Yeah, because Sherry go way back. <laughs> but we go back to Sharon Tate, and she's going to, like, you know, somewhere in some some cinema in Hollywood where she's watching a screening of The Wrecking Crew uh, and, you know, kind of, like, has to really call attention to the fact that she's one of the actresses in the film, mm-hmm. which is what I was talking about. It's kind of a, um, a reference to the fact that she was someone who was supposed to be a big star. Yeah, she was getting there. Yeah. Like, like I like that scene because she's like, she doesn't, she does the, don't you know who I am, but doesn't do it in a very annoying, pretentious way. Yeah. She does it in a very, like, jokey, kind of, like, cute way, right? Where she's like, oh yeah, I'm the I'm the girl in the blonde from, I forgot what movie they referenced, and she goes, no, I was the girl that did all the dirty movies, remember? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, she has no, like, you know, she she pokes fun at herself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, she refers to her character in The Wrecking Crew as the klutzy one, that's why they picked me, or something like that. Like, yeah, like, she's, she's played, like, this girl that's gonna be America's sweetheart, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which then takes us to pretty much like the movie splits into two main stories and they're interspersed. It almost splits into three because well one, between between uh, Sherry <laughs> between Sherry Cliff and Rick right because Sharon is watching the film she's putting on her oh so sixties glasses while she's watching and just it. walking around with her feet all out <laughs> and about like and some sort of strumpet gauging the reaction from everyone else who's in the theater. Uh, while we're in that, that's where we have um, 
Cliff picking up Pussycat, who is the hitchhiker, mm-hmm. that he's actually going to end up taking back to Spawn Ranch. And while at the very same time is where we're in Rick's, like, you know, audition and shooting his scenes for the day. Uh, for Lancer. Yeah, which, you know, it's it's funny because he, like, he royally fucks it up the first time. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where that's the scene right after that where he's in his, like, uh, trailer. Like, you see it in the actual trailer of the film where he, like, loses his shit after the- So which one do you want to talk about first? You want to talk about Rick or you want to talk about uh, Cliff? Uh, let's talk about Rick. Oh, I fucking love Rick. <laughs> so Rick's on, <laughs> Rick's on the scene, and they keep trying to play him up. Like the director has has him pretty much covered, wants him covered head to toe, and he doesn't want the audience to realize it's Rick Dalton. Mm-hmm. He wants the audience to think that's this badass, weird, like '60s biker looking cowboy. <laughs> And I think they call his style 1860s meets 1960s. Mm-hmm. And um, and so he wears like this weird, like this handlebar mustache. He has just this long hippie hair and that brown looking 60s jacket with tassels on it. Yes. Everyone's seen that jacket. Yep. And honestly, yeah. He and looked, I pictured that jacket before they even created it for him. Yeah, because they, they describe it and I'm like, I've seen that jacket. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because... He's playing opposite Timothy Oliphant, and in and in this episode of Lancer, he's this bad guy that is pressuring a landowner into get like extorting, trying to extort money out of him, right? Yes. So the scenes are pretty much him threatening these people and eventually kidnapping a girl. Yes, which and threatening her. Which one of the best scenes in this moment is actually his discussion with the girl, who's uh, I guess Trudy Fraser, who is actually going to be the co-star in mm-hmm. the scene with him. She's shown as like reading a book and seems like a much more mature person than he is. In many she, ways. My favorite part is she's like eight years old, but she's like imagine she's what Shia LaBeouf is now talking about like varying acting methods, where she talks about oh it's her job as an actor. Not an actress, mind you, as an actor to be able to present whatever emotion or range of emotion that's needed from the director. Which I think it's a conscious choice because the very next decade, like in two years, three years, that's where we're going to have the rise of Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Mm. um, what's it called, Dustin Hoffman and all these really character method actors in the 1970s so it's almost like the fact that they're that they have her casted as an eight-year-old girl Mm -hmm. you just know that she's going to grow up to be in one of these very nuanced performances that she's told and like she's so into being a character actor that like she refuses to be called by her real name while on set because she wants she doesn't want to break character and one of my favorite fucking this whole subplot is my favorite peak rick dalton because rick starts she asks him, what book are you reading? And he starts talking about this Bronco Buster. <laughs> when he was young, he talks about how this guy, this guy was young and he was attractive and he got everyone's attention. And then he got older, he got hurt. And then his body hurts and no one looks for him for work. And he's just kind of like, where the fuck is my life gone? <laughs> and then he starts crying and she goes, oh my god, are you okay? And she goes, oh, this sounds like a really interesting book. To which he responds, you're going to be living it in about 20 years. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, what a dick. 
<laughs> no, it's funny. I think uh, there is a. Uh, I feel like DiCaprio has now reached a point in his career where you know he's hit middle age. Oh yeah, so he has passed. I feel like the Departed, the early to the early to mid two thousand stuff that he did with with um, Martin Scorsese is kind of peak attractive Leo. Yeah, and now he's 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 kind dad bod. He has settled into <laughs> older uncle Leo at this point. But I think one of the things I appreciate so much is that he is he's become a guy who has less and less vanity as he gets older. Oh yeah, it's and really he cool. He is so willing to kind of poke fun at himself. Especially in this film. I think, I'm pretty sure that him putting on weight is purposeful for this. Mm-hmm. Because he is, he is now like, he's flabbier and older than we've ever seen him in a film. Mm-hmm. And he is someone who's not afraid to be pathetic. And it's also what makes his performance so memorable. It's so fucking great. <laughs> and so, this takes us into the into the scene where he acts out uh, with Timothy Oliphant. And the, and the entire scene is in this front of this can- cantina. Really good, like you know, they're really trying to. Yes, once he goes into the trailer and yells at himself and threatens to kill himself. <gasps> oh my god! So, so yeah, he fucks up the line, and then he's like, "Can we? Can we do it again?" And then the director's like, "No, we don't have time. Just fucking do it." He goes into the trailer and then just starts yelling at himself. You had to drink eight fucking whiskey sours. You couldn't have stopped at two or three. You had eight. Yeah, which is funny. I mean, like, it just reminds me, oh, yeah, that's right. Rick is an alcoholic. He doesn't drive himself around. So no. he is someone who clearly, like, needs to have this at all times. I love how he goes, I swear to God, if you get through this scene, you're going to quit drinking, okay? And then immediately starts <laughs> chugging his blood. And then throws it out the window. <laughs> but, but, yeah, the best line is he looks himself dead in the mirror and goes... He goes, you gotta go out there and get these lines right, or I swear to God, I'm gonna fucking blow your brains out all over this mirror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the way it's played up for laughs, but it's like, you are watching a man in the middle of a mental breakdown. Tarantino is good at this. Tarantino is very good at this. He's good at taking moments that should be very serious and dark, but he's able to, like, to he brings pull out levity, the laughs yeah. out of it. Him. He plays it up in a way that's not, like, disrespectful to what's going on, but holy shit, do you realize how silly it is? Yeah. Um, so then we do get back to him actually doing the, the real take of, of the scene, and I think this is where we see Luke Perry's character. Yeah, right? so this is Luke Perry's final film, or final credit on the film, I believe. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away 2019, late 2019, of pancreatic cancer, I yeah. think. Um, shout out to his son, Jungle Boy, killing it over on AEW, just yes. saying. Anyone who watches wrestling, you know that his son is a pro wrestler, and he's on AEW, and he's amazing, and he is local from the Bay Area as well, in terms of, like, the scene that he was in before he became national, so. So clearly we stand him, like, yeah. <laughs> as the kids say. <laughs> so he comes in, and he, um, plays Lancer, so I guess he's the t- titular hero, um, and he is going to, and he's, and, you know, he's trying to negotiate, um, this girl's release from, uh, Rick Dalton's character. And Dalton acts his ass off. Yes, it is a very fantastic scene that he does here and a very good, uh, performance that he gives. 
And so he ends up, you know, uh, he ends up wowing everyone to the point where Trudy comes up to him after the show or after the scene. Because apparently he improvs a lot in this scene, which very much like Leo did in, in, in Django, right? Mm. So it's actually not too hard to believe. So, um, you know, he, 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 he uh, what's it called? Improvs this this line where he says, I don't want no bean or bronco buster dropping off the money to me. Like, the freaking... The director loves that. He improvs a scene where he throws the little girl yes. down on the ground, which makes everyone fucking, like, holy shit, Rick Dalton's a badass. Yeah. So he really plays up this villainous character to the point where Trudy Frazier comes up to him after the, after the take and tells him that is the best acting I've ever seen, to which he starts just creeping, like, yeah. from joy. He's a very likable character, man. I think our three main characters in this film are very likable. Yeah. It's, it's really, you know, they're really well written. Um, this, of course, gets Dalton, um, gets him a, I think he impresses Marvin Schwartz so much that he puts in a call to, what's the director's name? Sergio Corbucci. So, Sergio Corbucci, clearly not Sergio Leone. Not. Not Sergio Leone. No, but Sergio Corbucci is an important name. Oh, wait, he's real? Yeah, he's a real oh, director. Oh, shit, I had no idea. Yeah, well, most famously, I think, especially if you're in the Tarantino mindset like we are right now, he's the guy who directed the original 1966 of Django. Really? So he stole the idea from the Japanese? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Yojimbo's Django, y'all. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> no, Yojimbo is, I think, uh, Fistful it's of Daughters. Fistful of Daughters, That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he ends up um, he gets a good word put in. Corbucci brings him over to Rome, where he goes on and has a resurgence in his career. He goes on and makes like four films in six months, which must be an ungodly schedule. That included a bunch of uh, a bunch of westerns and kind of like a James Bond ripoff. Funny that we were talking about James Bond earlier. Yeah. No. It's yeah. We think I was thinking about the world that again. Interestingly enough, we did on Her Majesty's Secret Service and the world that they live in in that film. This again, this is a love letter to that time yeah. period. So it's so, definitely easy to remember it, and then also the fact that he is playing a ripoff of James Bond is also a James Bond reference. He brings over Cliff, who you know does stunt work for him out there while they're in Italy, and he and, and Rick goes on and gets married with this starlet named Francesca Capucci. Capucci, sure. Kapuki, and that's his new wife, and you know that kind of wraps up that part of the. Uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna pause that. We're gonna jump over to an, another thread. All right, um, so let's jump into Cliff at this point. Yep. So this is where it's gonna get a little bit true crimesy for our true crime fans, because this is actual people now. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Cliff, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Tarantino did a good job of, like, actually picking people who were part of the Manson family. Every mm -hmm. character that is encountered by Cliff are people who are actually in the Manson family. Yep, Tex, uh, Squeaky, um, I forgot what the other girl's name is. Flower Child actually was, I think, a member. Um, I don't know about Pussycat, I think she might have been made just for the movie. But, yeah, there's actually a lot of people that, I mean, we can go through the, 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 the entire family, we don't have to. We don't have time for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but pretty much, um, you know, uh, Cliff. And, and what's crazy is that if you know you do your uh, your research, you find out that I think about uh, either a month before uh, the the Tate murders, 
there was actually a stuntman killed mm-hmm. at the at the at the spawn ranch. Right. I mean, so this, this is, whole time, this entire scene, you think that he's gonna get killed. I, yeah, I was like, oh my god, please don't kill Rick. I mean, don't kill Cliff. But pretty much, Cliff picks up this girl, uh, Pussycat, and she and he takes her back to Spawn Ranch, which is essentially like we said earlier. They shot uh, Bonanza and other uh, and other television shows there. It was essentially a western set, yeah, uh, and a ranch that was owned by a man named George George Spawn. And George Spawn does in real is in real life um, practically blind. And is befriended by Charles Manson and his minions, mm-hmm. um, and to basically house his entire cult on his ranch, and also you know in exchange yeah. for the fact that they were gonna help him with a lot of the tasks that needed to take be taken care of on the ranch, they cohabitated with I guess the ranch hands that were already there um, that that George had. And of course, uh, Manson offered up one of his girls to be his companion, and they were fucking him. Like, yeah. pretty much the way it worked on the Spawn Ranch is if you were one of them hot little hippie chicks, you would fuck somebody for a bed. Like, yeah. including, the- including, like, I mean, the Manson family had to monetize like their movement somehow, right? So there was a point where they did kind of dabble in selling drugs, which is they, you know, they like they sell the cigarette to Cliff, the yeah. acid dipped cigarette. They were selling these, you know, more psychedelic drugs, and they partnered up with kind of like biker gangs in the area. There was a lot, yeah. That's the thing about the Spawn Ranch. It had anybody that was on the fringe of society or what was considered like you know counterculture. They had a home at Spawn Ranch as long as they can provide something, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, fucking, it was that, for, for, what's his name, for Charles Manson, it's that he could fucking tell stories, even stories no one wanted to hear. Yeah, well, even stories that he got people to believe, right? Like, you know, like, I'm, I can't describe all the stuff with the Manson family, there are podcasts that do it better than we could ever possibly ever think of doing it. But the point is that if you are going to be someone that's coming into this movie, I don't recommend coming into it cold. Yeah. You want to have a base understanding of what was going on around this time so that it colors your experience more. Because, again, Tarantino expects you to already know what is happening because he's going to subvert some of your expectations. Definitely. So, um, you know, Cliff offers Pussycat a ride back. <laughs> right off I feel like bat. we keep coming back to this piece. Well, They're yeah. on the ranch now. Well, no, I was just, <laughs> the only thing I wanted to say was that as the cop drives around her, he's, he's she's like, fuck you, pig! And then he's just like, Cliff just looks at this girl and was like, oh, man. Well, <laughs> like, he, what am I doing? Well, yeah, he's obviously sexually attracted to her, but he also understands that she is underage. No, he proves she is underage. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that—that's also the kind of like any people that ran away from home would just fucking hang out with Charlie Manson. He didn't give a fuck. He was a fucking weirdo. Yeah, no. So we get to the ranch, and he gets there, and right away, Pussycat wants him to meet Charlie. Charlie and a bunch of the family. This is like the height of Manson family's um, is uh, I guess membership. Because a lot of people tend to think that, you know, there was only maybe 12 people part of his cult. Like, no, his cult at one point was like 40 fucking people deep. Yeah, well, there was also times when they would left Spawn Ranch and they would go to another, I forget where it is, but they would go to other sections of Southern California in the desert and they even sent people to other countries sometimes. 
What they wanted to do is they were trying to fucking... They were trying to build doom buggies so they can live in the mountains or in the deserts. I am not fucking lying to y'all. No, 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 no. Charles Manson drugged these people and basically preached to them while they were tripping on, like, psychedelic <laughs> drugs. And of course, people that are high don't know better. They're like, yeah, man, that sounds rad. Yeah, well, a lot of the women who followed him literally thought they were going to sprout wings in real life. Yeah, the 60s were a wild time. <laughs> it was far out, man. <laughs> oh, I'm freaking out. So, um, right on, and you know what? This whole scene, there's a lot of fucking people that, a lot of people's famous kids. Fucking Kevin Smith's daughter, Harley Quinn Smith's in it. Fucking Ethan Hawke's daughter, I forgot what her name is, but she was in Stranger Things Season 3, mm-hmm. she's in it. Um, Dakota Fanning plays Squeaky, I had no idea, dude. She looks so different. I was like, what the fuck? Until you mentioned that, I actually didn't even notice that. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's definitely interesting, like, to to go through this uh, scene here because, okay, Cliff essentially tells all the children of Charles Manson that he does know George Spawn, and he hadn't seen him in a long time, and he did want to go visit him to make sure he was okay. And the entire time, I'm like, well, obviously he's dead. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, he's obviously dead. Or they're obviously going to kill him. Or, mm-hmm. like, before he even gets there. Or I honestly thought they were going to kill him, yeah. They probably have him held there against his will. But, you know, even though knowing the fact that, you know, he, he did, he, he obviously, he and Charles Manson obviously had a relationship. Like mm-hmm. a good relationship with each other. Oh, no, I meant they were going to, I thought they were going to kill um, Cliff. Yes. But, yeah, so... The, you know, the girls try to stop him, and he says, no, he wants to take a good look for himself. So, everyone just, like, creepily stands in line, just, like, staring at him while he goes all the way up. Yeah, this is also where we see Tex as well, who is, you know, famously the guy who was involved with the Sharon Tate murder as well. Yeah, so he's like, he, so the thing about Tex is Tex was a very normal-ish dude that was just kind of along for the ride, and then he takes... I think it was the the belladonna route, or he play, he takes a route you're not supposed to take, thinking it's like a mush like mushroom, and he ends up tripping so fucking hard that he dissociates and like comes back super dark, and so he's one of the driving forces behind Helter Skelter, mm-hmm. um, and him and uh, I think Squeaky and I forgot who else like they really push for it to happen later on. Um, so, but, you know, at this point, Tex is kind of normal. He, he gives, uh, Cliff a once over and ends up leaving. Uh, Cliff goes and he confronts Squeaky at the time, at, at George's house. And this is when we finally get some Tarantino dialogue where people talk really fast. <laughs> and Squeaky tells him that he better not wake up George because George has to be up so he can watch FBI and Bonanza and if, <laughs> if he gets tired... That she's going to be mad at him or whatever, right? So he ends up working his way in, and he goes and he meets George. And George has no idea who he is. Doesn't remember him at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they have a pretty funny book in, back and forth where Cliff asks him, Hey, who's that, you know, little redhead out front? To which George is like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I just told you I'm blind. How the fuck am I supposed to know? Mm-hmm. 
So he explains that he's okay with the hippies staying there, that he has no problem, you know, they're, that they're there to help him, and that Squeaky's kind of his girlfriend, live-in girlfriend, right? Mm-hmm. So somewhat satisfied with the response, Cliff ends up leaving when he gets back to his car, you know, as he, get, as he walks over to his car. Uh, Buzzcat tells him that she's embarrassed, thanks to him. Um, he makes it to the, to the car, which is Rick's, Rick Dalton's car. He finds a knife in one of the, uh, pat, or one of the back tires, and he sees one of the hippies just laughing his ass off. Cliff goes and gets his, uh, his spare tire, and yells at this hippie to come change the, change the tire. The guy says no, and he proceeds to beat the shit yeah, out of him. the ever-loving shit out of him. Holy, I was like, bro, that's pretty intense, right? So this entire time you're you're sitting on fucking pins and needles like when is he gonna die? When is he gonna die? When is he gonna die? And you know again Tarantino subverting expectations. He starts beating the shit out of this hippie, and you're like, oh my god, now he's super gonna die. One of the girls is go after and try to get um try to get uh, Cliff. No, mm-hmm. not Cliff. Sorry, uh, Tex. Tex rides back, and it, right as he gets there, ever you know we get that shot of. Uh, of Cliff driving down the road and just kind of being on his way, right? Um, oh, interesting to note that during... I don't know which scenes it is, but during scenes where Cliff is driving, you understand the existence of a big kahuna burger yep. and also red apple cigarette, uh, which, you know... Which are all everything. staples in yeah. Tarantino's movies. I think his... The, the, the dog food brand is also a Tarantino. This brand. movie does feel like the one where everything is in universe now. Yeah. I, I think I think that's like the modern touch to all of this. Very Marvel. Pretty much. Very Marvel before Marvel. Everything's connected, right? Yeah. So finally, all our threads are, ma- are mashing together. Cliff Booth goes along with Rick Dalton to, to Italy... They act in movies together. On their way back, Rick tells Cliff that he can't possibly afford him anymore. But he's really thankful for his friendship and them being together. And I love... Uh, I love uh, Kurt Russell's narration during this part where he says, yes. he has that line where you're, you know, when you're two guys that are little more than brothers but not quite uh, husband and wife, the only way you can possibly say and uh, say goodbye to each other is by getting shit-faced drunk together. <laughs> yep, which is exactly what they're planning on doing, and this is supposed to be the last night that they're all, that they're going to be together. Um, they end up going out to dinner at a Mexican restaurant. Uh, which was different from the Mexican restaurant that Sharon Tate is at, which is in real life. Uh, Sharon Tate goes to El Coyote. Like, I love night. that people go to El Coyote and ask for what Sharon Tate's. They ask. Do they? There's um, people that go to El Coyote and ask for what Sharon Tate's last meal, and they'll make whatever they want and fucking upcharge it like three hundred percent. Oh shit! <laughs> because they're like, we don't fucking know what she had. That I night. definitely do want to go see the restaurant. I wouldn't fucking order it. I, it feels super fucking dark. Like, no, I'm, yeah. I'm cool with dark shit, but that's a little bit too morbid for me. No, like, absolutely not. I already thought it was creepy enough that you know I've been to the, the I've been to the Denny's on Sunset Boulevard that uh, that ends up getting dressed up in Mulholland Drive as a Winkies. Yeah, I've been there. Um, so it's definitely I do like when you go to LA and you and you go to something that's been in a movie. You definitely do want to do that if you get the opportunity, right? Yeah. But yeah, I don't know if I'd specifically ask for what her last meal was. 
So as um, Nick, uh, I was about to say as Nick, <laughs> as Rick and and uh, as Rick and Cliff are having their final night together, pretty much, I want to say as friends, but just like as uh, associates. Yeah, uh, it mirrors the same night that um, that uh, Sharon's having with her friends. So right. it's like Jay, and you wonder how these two stories are going to come together because Roman Polanski is, is barely in the movie. I don't even think he has really that many lines. He's been gone. Um, you understand that uh, you Sharon's know. super. Her ego is super prego. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and she by this point she's already hanging out with uh, the Folgers Coffee heiress and Roman Polanski's friend. I forget what his name is. And that fucking Polish dude. Yeah, I who what his name you is know too. who was kind of a low key drug dealer, right? Um, yeah. And part of it, part of the reason why these worlds do end up kind of crossing together is because a lot of shady characters would come by the mansion. Because apparently in the '60s, if you were rich, anyone could come to your house. Like it was, and it was super normal. It was super normal to have strangers just walking around buy drugs and then leave at two in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so as they're having this night out, um, you know everything is pretty normal, and then we get around midnight. Um, Sharon and her friends were kind of turning in, just kind of partying, vibing. Meanwhile, Rick and uh, Rick and Cliff make it back to their house. Francesca, uh, Rick's wife, is asleep uh, because she's jet lagged. All being protected by the best character, Brandy. Yeah, which and, I mean, obviously, it looks like uh, Cliff is going to spend the night, so they're they're all going to be in the same house. Yeah, he decides that you know to take Brandy out for a walk, and while he does that. That's where he's going to take his cigarette dipped in acid that he bought from Pussycat. Fuck yeah, dude. He's about to get weird, man. (laughs) While he's doing that, Rick is in the kitchen making frozen margaritas. (laughs) Rick is just always down to drink. I fucking love it. It's just, you feel like he's just going to destroy everything. You're just like, this is a bad idea. You should really quit. Uh, Rick is like... Every sloppy drunk night that I've ever had in my twenties. <laughs> hey man, do you like make fucking carbos? <laughs> do you some Irish carbos? It reminds me of like this one night where like we came home, took Hennessy shots like on a Tuesday night. <laughs> oh my God, we used to drink so much. <laughs> remember that? Ne- remember that morning we got E forty like. Oh, yeah. Those E40 drinks? Yeah. And we got drunk before all our friends showed up, and it oh, was like a think, Sunday afternoon. A few times have I been that drunk. Like, I remember we just started drinking. We started drinking at like 11 in the morning. Yeah, we were watching wrestling, and then I was like, I was incoherent drunk by the end of the show at night. We drank a lot. I don't even know but, how I got home that night. That's exactly what I was thinking about when I was watching this scene. Um, and funny enough, while this is happening, and while they're playing the records, while Sharon Tate's playing the records, and she's there with Jay, and the other two characters, and they're all playing the piano, reading a book, getting stoned, whatever, right? Yeah, whatever the um, shit rich people do. At the very same time, that's where you have the Manson family that is pulling into the neighborhood on Cielo Drive. 
And I'll say this, the scene where they, like, decide what they're going to do, like, how they're going to, every high conversation I ever had. (laughs) No, I mean, like, the fact that when they're getting out of the car and they're actually getting ready to go, what I think is going to go kill Sharon Tate, um, that's when, I guess, the only thing that changes their mind is when they pull up to the mansion, right? They get, end up getting cussed out by Rick. <laughs> fucking drunk ass Rick comes out. <laughs> what the fuck are y'all doing, you hippies? You smoking dope? <laughs> Drinking out of a blender full of margaritas. <laughs> walking out in his fucking. <laughs> he's just walking around in his, his fucking, fucking bathrobe. <laughs> Uh, and then that's when they get like turned away and they recognize Rick from his television show, right? Yeah. And um <laughs> I think it's Sadie that goes on to say, Hey, how about instead of killing a whoever's in uh in in the in what's his name? The music producer's house, why don't we kill Rick Dalton? Because if you watch TV if you fucking watch TV, man, you learn to kill. So why don't we kill the people that taught us to kill, man? <laughs> But when they get out, and then, like, I, I think one of the characters leaves their gun or their weapon. She leaves her knife. knife. She leaves her knife in the car. The scene where they're kind of joking like that, like, you know what it reminds me of? Another Tarantino film? Mm-hmm. It actually reminds me of the hood scene from Django Unchained. Where yes! all the guys in white yes! hoods are like... It starts off as something that's dark and evil, and then they're playing the dramatic, like, music with all mm-hmm. the choir going off and everything. And by the time you get there, everyone is like, you can't see fucking shit in this thing. Like, that's the same kind of conversation that they were having. It's the same fucking type of dark humor, because it highlights that, yeah, these people are fucking dangerous. They're also super idiots. Like, they're fucking stupid as a bag of doorknobs. <laughs> well, that's the funny thing, is that, is that Rick, Cliff, and these guys were all stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is somehow fucked up. <laughs> so, as they end up leaving after Tex, uh, and this is where the, 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 the lines finally get very Tarantino-y, um, Tex ends up, you know, rallying the girls and telling them, oh, Charles said to go kill everybody in there and make it witchy, which apparently was actually one of yeah. They, these are actual these are actual lines. These are yeah. actual lines from the actual crime. Uh, having one of the women go around the back is exactly what they did at Sharon Tate's yeah. house. So <clears throat> their oh, base- flower child ends up dipping. She's like, "Fuck this shit." Yeah. <laughs> she got scared as fuck. Which she obviously in real life she didn't drive away. But in real life, she didn't really do much of anything, and she's mm-hmm. the one who kind of ends up testifying against them. She was supposed to have the getaway vehicle, yeah. Um, so they end up... So Rick ends up going into the pool, and um, Cliff comes back high as balls, <laughs> and he starts tripping out. He, he feeds Brandy, and at that moment, you know, everyone breaks in. Tex breaks in, like, kicks the door in. And uh, Cliff ends up recognizing him. Yeah. And he goes, wait, you're the fucking cowboy. He goes, I remember you. Yeah. And then I remember you with your white little face. <laughs> and then he points at Sadie. And then they go and they get Francesca. They get the dog. They get everyone out in the living room. And they're ready to kill everybody. And Tex has that line where, you know, uh, Cliff asks him, who are you? <laughs> to which, um, or he says, what's your name or something like that, right? 
To which uh, Tex responds, I'm the devil, and I'm I'm here to do the devil's work. Yes. Which Again, is actual from the crime scene. Something that, that Tex actually says, to which Cliff responds, no, that's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and then... This is where I'm like, okay... Tarantino's we're... up super hard. Yeah, I was like, I was like, wow, we are in Inglorious Bastards right now. So, with one fucking, like, noise... No, Sadie runs at Cliff, Cliff grabs the dog food, throws it right (laughs) at Sadie's face, breaking her nose. The dog attacks Tex and starts biting his testicles. (laughs) (laughs) And then fucking, like, Francesca punches Katie and she ends up running back back, back to her room. Katie tackles Cliff... Ends up stabbing him, to which Cliff responds by fucking pounding her face into literally everything. Yes, yes. she is literally getting the shit killed out of her. And he, and he kills her. She walks over. He walks over and stomps fucking like Texas head in. All while the dog is <laughs> then turns and attacks Sadie while she's on the ground. I was like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> absolutely fucking wild. And it's funny because I swear to God, I texted you last night while I was watching this. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I was like, there was a long portion of this movie where I was like, this doesn't feel that much like a Tarantino movie until the last goddamn 40 minutes of it. And then... <laughs> Straight to the moon. Which, you know, this is the thing. Every single Tarantino movie, I think... I think Jackie Brown and and after Jackie Brown, a lot of his movies are revenge fantasies. Yeah, very and much that so. Is, and, and I, you know, and obviously, you know, the same thing happened in Hateful Eight and Django, uh, Glorious Bastard, and all that kind of stuff. But for some reason, I was like, man, there was enough that was different about it on my first watch. That I, you know, that was I was g- gonna have a very negative opinion of this movie because I was like, wow, this doesn't feel like it's about anything, and it mm-hmm. doesn't feel very Tarantino. But this scene is so violent, and <laughs> and I think Sadie's the one who like Sadie. Sadie's the one who got Sadie's the, the one that got it the face, worst. Right? Yeah, so she yeah. got she got the the she got the dog from the face. Is yeah. she, does she also get her arm mangled? She gets gets it the worst. She gets her arm mangled. She can't even see because she's gotten the shit beat out of her so bad. And then she's the one who, like, goes flailing into the back. (laughs) She, like, smashes through the glass. (laughs) Who gets her face all fucked up from the window. Cliff is like, I mean, Cliff. Rick is like, what the fuck is going on? And it's funny because they, they have this scene where, like, the radio falls into the pool. And I actually thought that once Sadie fell into the pool that she was gonna get electrocuted. Oh my god. But, no. No, no, no. No, it's it way was, better than that. It was gonna get way fucking stupider. Rick's junk ass. So Sadie starts shooting the gun up in the air Rick's junk ass goes to his tool set grabs the grabs the goddamn flamethrower. Which apparently is legal to have in this state as I learned. So he has the goddamn flamethrower from, what's it called? The 17th Fist of McCluskey or some shit. Yeah, it is the, it's again, it's a World War II movie where he like flames all the Nazis. So he proceeds to fucking torch Sadie in the pool. And you know, Cliff obviously can't do much because at this point he's been like stabbed on his the side of his hip. Yeah. You know, so it's not fatal, but he's obviously hurt. Um... 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, these guys are all fucking dead. They are <laughs> super fucking dead. <laughs> they are absolutely brutalized. So, like, LAPD shows up and they get a statement from everybody where, like, Cliff is coming down from the acid trip. <laughs> he doesn't fucking... <laughs> I love how he paraphrases it. He goes, I'm the devil and I'm gonna do devil shit. I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> Fucking Francesca screaming <laughs> Italian profanity. <laughs> <laughs> More Italian profanity. Oh my god. It was, yeah, this whole scene, it just takes off like a fucking freight train. Cliff ends up, they end up loading Cliff into an ambulance, and Rick immediately wants to go to the hospital with him. And honestly, up until this point, I always like, I'm like, does Rick really care about Cliff? Yes. And, you know, you have that moment where he's like, no, you go back in there, you go back in there, take care of your wife. He goes, just watch Brandy for me. It, it's a much more, it, it, obviously, they, they care about each other a lot more. It seems like a much more loving version of the end of Hateful Eight. Yeah. You know, the end yeah. of Hateful Eight has Walton Goggins and Sam Jackson just reveling at the fact that they, like, murdered... They <laughs> murdered all these people. Tom Hercule. And yeah. then, like, that's kind of what this is, is that they're all like, <laughs> look at what we did. And, they're, and you know, it's like their bromant that they're having before Pretty. he goes into the ambulance. And, obviously, Rick is going to be there to take care of uh, Brandy as mm-hmm. well. Um, and, you know, they have that moment where he, like, knocks on the door before he leaves and goes, man, you're a really good friend. I hope you know that. And, you know, and Cliff just tells him, hey, man, I try. Mm-hmm. And on his way out, Jay Sabring comes out and, you know, seeing the commotion, talks to him, and Rick tells him all the crazy shit that happens. And... um you know, he ends up uh, getting a call from the call box, and it's Sharon. Sharon, you know, introduced herself via the call box. She invites, uh, she invites Rick to yeah, come all the which, way up. This is a good scene for him because obviously he thinks that everyone has forgotten about him, but he realizes now at this point that well, he didn't know that the Manson family knew him from his television show, but uh, Sharon Tate like recognizes him from the show that he was in. And, like, calls him by his character's name as well, right? Jack, no, Jake Cahill. Yeah, so it's, like, it obviously, like... And, it, you know, it brings back uh, something he joked about in, like, the beginning when he found out Roman Polanski moved in. He even, you know, he goes on and he tells him, yeah, like, imagine, he goes, I'm one pool party away from getting yes. my, my one shot, you know? And here he is, he inadvertently, not, you know, saves Sharon Tate... And you're left to assume that he's actually going to get his one shot. Yes. And that Cliff is going to come back and that it isn't the last time that they've ever worked together. At least Mm -hmm. that's the impression I got. Oh, no. It definitely ends on a high note. It definitely ends on a happy note compared to other Tarantino movies. Yeah. And, you know, roll credits and that's our film. That's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, So I guess some final impressions I want to talk about. Um... You know, I guess I'm going to ask you, dude, like this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I have to admit, I did like this movie. And I was curious if I was going to like it more than I liked Hateful Eight. um, Which I actually thought Hateful Eight was pretty good. Yeah. Um, I know that it it wasn't as highly touted as Django was. Because Django, I think Django is one of his best movies. I think it's his second best after Jackie Brown for me. Mm -hmm. But um, I I have to admit that... um, the ending of this film really does lift it <laughs> into into something that I was really impressed with. Just because of the fact that, 
you know how how this is essentially a world building movie. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with the death of an old version of Hollywood and the beginning of something else. But then I feel like the ending of this film is actually just Tarantino telling you, "Hey, guess what? I'm back." And, Some I'm, still, and I'm still doing this, and and I I I know at some point, you know. Tarantino kind of alluded to the fact that he would only make 10 films and then kind of retire from filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I kind of hope he doesn't. I yeah. mean, I, I, like, I'll say that, yes, in some ways his films are overrated. They're over analyzed and they're, you know, I feel like. <laughs> he says on a podcast analyzing one of his movies? No, it's because I think, again, I think one of the, the things that people push back with Tarantino about is they, you know, they, they probably think that. Gen Xers make more out of his stuff than it actually is, mm-hmm. and I feel like, in terms of a millennial Gen Z kind of sensibility, it's just kind of like how how connected are we just to his work still now that we're this far removed to the '90s from the '90s? And I have to admit that you know I, I do appreciate the revenge fantasy area mm-hmm. era that we are in now. You know, obviously I love Kill Bill. I do think both volumes are really good. I think volume two is spectacular, probably even better. Um, I love the end of Django. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the end of Hateful Eight. And despite the fact that Hateful Eight was a Western or took place in, you know, much in the past, Why I are you thought. you always forgetting Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> no, I like Inglorious Bastards too, but it's actually not. I don't, I don't have as much esteem for it as probably you do. <laughs> but I thought Hateful Eight was one of his more modern movies in terms of the discussions that the characters had. Mm-hmm. I feel like this one spent less time kind of trying to tell you what it was about. And it showed you. And you just got to enjoy it. Yes. Um, no, I, I agree with that. My, my biggest criticism with this movie... And I remember you were, we were talking about it. You are really afraid I was going to be S in this, this movie's D for like yeah, I, 30, I was. 90 minutes. My biggest criticism with this movie, as much as I love Quentin Tarantino... I think we both S'd its D a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But, so this movie reeks of Marky Mark Wahlberg after 9-11. When Mark (laughs) Wahlberg... So, I don't know if you ever heard, but Mark Wahlberg said that if he was there on the plane during 9-11, he would have stopped that. To me, this is... So, all he does is make, like, conservative white man fantasy movies. Yes, I know. So... (laughs) (laughs) So, Quentin Tarantino was like, Hey, man, if I I was there, I would have saved Sharon, dog. Like, I would have kicked her ass. I think that's exactly what this is. And it's such a, like... It's it's one of those things, like, don't get me wrong, I love the story, I love, there's a lot to love in this movie, but ultimately that, that, that mentality is so, like, it's so cringy, and there's nothing cringier than people who say the word cringy, like I just did, but, you know, like, it's just such a cringy way of viewing the world, to be like, oh, I could have done something, you know? I Let me tell you this. why I disagree with that, and I'm gonna disagree with another movie whose, whose D you love to S. And that's you say Inglorious, the mummy. No, Inglorious oh. Bastards. Inglorious Bastards is the revenge fantasy. It is we killed the living shit out of Hitler. So to me, in my opinion, and I, it was one of the reasons why I dogged Inglorious Bastards when it came out. And why I'm not as crazy about it. I've come around to it more in later years. But I wasn't that crazy about it. But because that exists, the fact that he's done this with the Sharon Tate murder... 
That is nothing compared to actually fucking murdering Hitler. No, that's movie. fine because murdering Hitler is fun. <laughs> you know, you didn't get to see Jojo Rabbit. I don't know. So to you me, don't get it. to me, if you if you if you're if you're gonna have such a big problem with that, then you should probably have a bigger problem with Inglorious Bastards. No, because the way it was played up for in Inglorious Bastards, Inglorious Bastards, it didn't feel like it didn't feel like if Quentin Tarantino was saying, "Hey, if you sent me into World War II, I would fucking fuck Hitler in the face." I thought that this exactly. What Aldo was no, doing. he no. The Jews. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck! I really hope no one isolates that. <laughs> but no, like this movie specifically, it it and it's because of the way that he films those scenes with Sharon Tate, or well, with Margot Robbie, and like has such a weird like he puts her as like the ultimate girl next door, you know. Um... Yes, because she is. Again, she is not as active a character. Bitch, can I finish my thought? <laughs> oh, we about to fight for real on this episode then. <laughs> Literally, I can't believe you're arguing me on a movie that I also like. <laughs> Point is, some of the things I do like about this movie. That Honestly, that's like I said, that's my only gripe with this movie. No, don't do that. Come back. No, honestly, my only gripe with this movie is, like, like, that's it. Honestly, everything else, I love the world building. It was fucking fantastic. It's cool. Enjoy being wrong. You got to see an amazing script about two dudes that just fucking, it's it's bromance, and it's great, you know? Like, fucking Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio were fucking amazing. Um, you know, like, I felt that, what's her face, Margot Robbie did an amazing job, you know? Like, it, it's... And I think the best part, and even though it was my criticism, that I th- felt they did handle the the murders or, you know, the whole incident fairly respectful, you know? Even regardless of my feelings or, like, of, you know, whatever they didn't projection in- Quentin Tarantino oh, I appreciate there, the fact know? that we didn't get into the gruesome details of the actual murder. Yes. Right? I feel like I, feel like I would have a giant problem of this movie if we really were going to see the dramatization of the death of Sharon Tate. That's when I would have been like, nah, fam. I'm out. Yeah, and I feel like the reason why this works, and the same reason why the ending of Inglorious Bastards works, yes, I'll admit it, it works more than it did for me than when I first saw it ten years ago, um, but the reason why it works is because you're not going to get into the gruesome details of the terrible things that these people actually did, you're just going to watch them get justice. Yeah, which we weren't afforded in real life. Yes. You know, so... At the end of the but day, hey, that's the point of that's, that's the we point can't just see this in a movie. That's yeah. the point of fiction, right? So, I so will ultimately, it. ultimately, I like the movie. It's definitely worth watching. If you guys do want to watch it, break it up into three parts the way I did. You break like the, honestly, the easiest way to digest this movie is you pause right at um, right after the Green Hornet scene, and you pause right after Cliff beats the shit out of that hippie on Spawn Ranch. And I think those are like easily digestible thirds of the film. Uh, you you watch it straight through, yeah, with your busy ass schedule. I was very surprised. Well, that's the thing too is I I think that this is going to be a movie that I do kind of want to come back to, and I probably feel the way uh, the way I feel about it is exactly the same way that I felt about Rise of Skywalker and a lot of the movies that we watch in theaters, mm-hmm. where I kind of try to process how I feel about it while I'm talking about it because I've only seen it once before this review. So ideally, I would like to watch this again to see what other kinds of things that I pick up when I watch it again. Mm-hmm. And then maybe my opinion in a year from now or a couple years from now will be different, right? 
It's yeah. the same reason why, because we chose to do Joker six months after Joker came out, I had a much different opinion about it than I did the night I watched it. Yeah, so we'll see if we ever revisit this. We might touch up on it. Yeah, I mean, but, we're going to talk more Tarantino movies in the future, so I'm sure we'll get back to our thoughts on this in some way or another. But anyway, we'd like to thank everybody for joining us for this episode. Um, we hope that you continue to follow us uh, on our James Bond series, because we will be coming back next week uh, to our James Bond series with the triumphant return for one time only of <laughs> Sean Connery. On Bach Butters. <laughs> Uh, in Diamonds Are Forever, which is, I, 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 you know what, the best way to describe it, I was thinking about it today, because I think I talked about how in this series, I wa- in the James Bond series, I wanted to do the best and the worst Bond movies in that series. I don't think that's true. I don't think these are the worst. I think that, <laughs> I think we picked, so I think we picked the more popular uh, Bond movie from that James Bond, and then also the one where they jumped the shark completely. Nice. So, so you know, I'm getting, I, I'm definitely looking forward to the jump the shark movies in this series because of some of the ridiculous discussions that have come out of it. Go get me a martini, sweetheart. Smack. <laughs> Your mother's a whore, Trebek. <laughs> Alright, we'll talk to you guys next week when we come back for Diamonds Are Forever. Bye. (laughs) Bye, Terrence.